of other people. He's a Jesus of Aesop's fables who gives us a moral or gives us an example that we can either leave or take. And the result is a God who is passive and absent. If he exists, he does not intervene, and so he is a God without justice. But a loving God without justice is not loving at all. And a love without boundaries is a distortion. And a love without truth is a lie. A passive God is no God at all, and love will be proven by its actions, and love will be justified by its works. One writer um, says it this way, love without truth is sentimentality. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. But truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. What we need, what you need, what you and I need, what the world needs, is a love of honesty, a love of truth, a love of action, and a love of justice. Also, imagine trying to parent with this redefinition of love, where you can only affirm your children in every and all behaviors, actions, and attitudes. While culture is redefining love and criticizing it, or simply boiling it down to a chemical reaction in your brain, um, and again, that, uh, is that we have no control over, culture also simultaneously gives us clear and vivid and beautiful pictures of love. We see it in movies. If you've basically seen any Disney movie, there are marvelous and um, just powerful images of love. If you see, um, if you've seen Tangled, there's the self-sacrificial love of Flynn for Rapunzel. Or if you've seen Frozen, there's the self-sacrificial love of Anna for her sister. Or if you've seen um, superhero movies from uh, Wonder Woman, the final line of this movie is that now I know only true love can save the world. And it's beautiful, and it's true. Furthermore, if you look at quotes online, I like looking at quotes, you know, you can look up quotes about science or goodness or life or whatever. You will find more quotes about love than anything. You'll find more quotes about love than quotes about life because love is what makes life worth living. It's what everyone is after. It's what we long for and it's what we desire. Or as the Beatles say, all you need is love. And so we've got to critically deal with the materialistic criticisms of love and also the redefinitions of love while at the same time affirming where culture gets love right. All right, what I want us to do this morning, what we're going to see in our passage, is that true Christian identity is shaped by constantly experiencing, grasping, and forever being changed by the love of God. Let me say that one more time. True Christian identity is shaped by constantly experiencing, grasping, and being forever changed by the love of God. And we're going to do that by looking at Paul's three requests and then Paul's praise. And if you look at your bulletin, I'll read this passage and then we can, I'll pray for us. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in, his, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word, we ask that your spirit would be present, that you would be shaping us, that you would be making us into the image of your son, that you would be conforming us to his likeness, that we would be in awe of your grace, your glory, and your love. And we ask in this time, Lord, that you would be transforming us for your name and glory. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to begin by looking at Paul's three requests. And the first request is in verses 14 through 17. And Paul's request is that you as a Christian would experience who you are. That you would experience union with Christ. At this point in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he is summarizing, uh, he's summarizing three chapters of theology. He's summarizing who Christ is, who God is, and what he has done for us. And so as we look at this first request, Paul is actually um, summarizing all that he has said before. Let's look and see, first of all, who he is addressing in this prayer. He is addressing the Father. He says that he is bowing before the Father. And the Father is one who has authority. He is the one who works all things according to his purpose and his will. He is the one who is sovereign over all things, as it says in our verse, in heaven and on earth. And if he is our Father, then necessarily we are his sons and daughters. We have an inheritance as his children. We have been brought in to his family. Even as we prayed, as Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven. This is who Paul is addressing in this prayer. And what specifically is he asking? If you look again, it says that um, he is praying that we would be strengthened with power in our inner being. And what this means is that Christ's resurrection life would be taking place in us, that we would be shaped and empowered in the life of Christ. Paul has said this earlier in Ephesians 1 verses 19 through 20. He says that he wants Christians to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. He wants the power of Christ, he wants us to know and experience that the power of Christ, the power of his resurrection life, is actually at work in you and in me. And look where this power is taking place. It's taking place in the inner person, or as Paul says, in the inner man. And this is in contrast with the world, which is primarily oriented with the external. 
It is primarily concerned with how you look or the image that you portray or project in social media or what else. And this also is kind of in contrast with how I often pray, that I often am concerned primarily with my circumstances, the things that are external to me. And Paul prioritizes the internal. That doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for circumstances. Of course, we should. And yet Paul prioritizes the inner person. So why should we, um, or why is Paul praying that we would be strengthened with this power? What is the result or what is the purpose? What is this geared toward? If you look, um, look with me at verse 17. It says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is the purpose. This is the reason. This is why he's praying that we would be strengthened. And yet um, there should be maybe some bells um, ringing that seem like a problem um, because generally when we say Christ dwelling in our heart, that's how we use to describe conversion. When you become a Christian, you believe in Christ and Jesus comes and lives in your heart. Um, And that's how we generally use this language. And Paul is praying for Christians, so why would he be praying that Christ would dwell in their heart again? The focus here is not on conversion, but it's experience. It's not conversion. He's praying for Christians, but what he's praying for specifically is that Christ would be the center of our affections and our lives. So it wouldn't simply be cognitive, but it'd be experiential. There was a Puritan theologian named Thomas Goodwin who um, used an illustration to describe this in this passage. And he talks about a parent and a child walking down the street. And he saw this and, you know, they were holding hands. And um, he was thinking about how the status of the child is the same. They're walking, that's father father and child or mother and daughter. um, And the status is the same. But the parent then picks up the child in their arms and kisses them and squeezes them close and says, I love you. Now, has the status of the child changed. No, their status is different, and yet the child's experience of their relationship is fundamentally different. They are receiving and experiencing the benefits of this relationship, and that is what Paul is praying for. He's praying that you and I would be experiencing this relationship, that we'd be grasping it, that we'd be caught up in the arms of our God to know who he is and what he has done for us. And yet Paul also unpacks how this takes place. He says it's by the Spirit, that the Spirit of Christ comes and lives within us, and yet it's also by faith. By faith we lay hold of the promises of God. And then he also says, according to the riches of his glory. And that's kind of uh, dense theological jargon that like isn't, yeah, is kind of hard to unpack. But what Paul has used um, this phrase before, when he, he's used it in Ephesians 1, where he says um, that the glory of God is most clearly revealed in his grace. So when he's praying that we would be experiencing this according to the riches of his glory, he's saying that he wants us to experience it through grace. So as a whole, Paul wants the Ephesians and you and me not just to know, but to experience who you are in Christ. That we would see that Christ is the center of every aspect of salvation, what it means to be a Christian. 
So that if I view myself apart from Christ, I'm no longer viewing myself properly. So what is the main aspect of this relationship with Christ that Paul is focusing on on in this passage that he wants us to experience? What specifically, what benefit of this relationship does he want us to grasp? And I've already said it, but it's love. It is the love of Christ. So the second request is that you would grasp who you are, that you are the beloved of Christ. Look at verses 17 18 and 19. Let me read it again. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And first of all, love is the beginning for the Christian. It says that he's praying that we would be rooted and grounded in love. And he's mixing two metaphors, the metaphor of a building and the metaphor of a tree. And he's saying that we'd be rooted like roots of a tree and grounded like the foundation of a building, that we'd be grounded in love, that love would be the foundation for all that you are and have and ever hope to be. That would be the core of who you are, even as it says in 1 John, that we love because he first loved us, that his love is primary. So love is the beginning for the Christian, yet love is also the middle. Paul prays that we would comprehend, that we would grasp, that we would take hold and make our own this love. We need to realize also is that love then is defined by God and not by us. It's not defined by the individual. And Paul continues this metaphor of a building by talking about kind of these uh, dimensions, breadth, length, height, and depth. And this continues this metaphor of a building. We should ask, how broad is the love of Christ if that's what he wants us to know? What is the breadth of the length, um, the breadth of the love of Christ? And the love of Jesus covers every sin. The love of Jesus is so broad that it covers every sin, every mistake, every wrongdoing, every misplaced word or deed or thought or attitude. The love of Jesus is boundless. It is greater than all the oceans of the the world. He also prays that we would know the length of the love of Christ. So we should ask, how long is the love of Christ? How long lasting is his love. The love of Jesus continues forever. It began in eternity past, and it will go on into eternity future. There is no end, and there is nothing that can sever this bond of love that Christ has made to us. He also talks and prays that we would know the depth of the love of Christ. So we should ask, how deep is the love of Christ? The love of Jesus is so deep that he chose not to stay in heaven, but chose to come down to us when we were in rebellion against him. And he came and he lived the life that we ought to have lived. And he died the death that we deserved because of our sin. And he took on hell itself on our behalf. The love of Jesus has descended to the deepest of depths to rescue us. The love of God found in Christ thus is a love of action. It's a love of zeal. It's a love of commitment and fortitude. Not a love of sentimentality, not a love of passivity, which turns a blind eye to my evil and my sin, 
but it's a love that addresses you and me in the depths of our sin and misery and raises us out of it into the grace and glory of God. So we should ask, how high is the love of Jesus? Jesus has raised us up to him. He has given us his spirit, given us his new life, and he will raise us forever in resurrection glory, where we'll be free from all sin and evil forever. And even now, all things must be working for our good and for our salvation. Or as one hymn writer put it, O the deep, deep love of Jesus, spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loves us, ever loves us, changes never, never more. O the deep, deep love of Jesus, tis heaven of heavens to me, and it lifts me up in glory, for it lifts me up to thee. So love is the beginning, it's the middle, and yet love is the end for the Christian. Um, Look at verse 19. It says um, that the riches of his love are endless, and so this love surpasses knowledge. The love of God must ever be seen as miraculous. It cannot be explained, but must ever leave us in awe and wonder. Once I start pointing to things in my life that are the cause of the love of God, I have misunderstood it. If I said, God loves me because I'm so great, I'm so humble, and I do so many great things for all these people, that's why God loves me. I'm not self-aggrandizing at all. God loves me because I'm so good. Once I start pointing to myself to talk about why God loves me, I misunderstand his love. As one theologian puts it, the love of God does not find, but rather creates that which is lovely to it. Let me say that again. The love of God does not find that which is lovely to it, but rather it creates that which is lovely to it. And hear this, that since it's not, since this love is not motivated or something that I've earned on the basis of what I've done or who I am, this love is not something that I can lose. It truly is a love that will not let me go. And this is what we need to experience. This is what the world is singing about. This is what all the movies are pointing toward. And this is what all of us are longing for. This is what we need to hear, that we are fully known and fully loved, that we are loved not because of our beauty, but despite our sins and our faults, and that it's the love of God that's transforming us into lovely people. I've used this illustration before, but if ever you've seen Beauty and the Beast, um, it is the perfect picture of the transformative power of love. The beauty, Belle, means beauty, the beautiful one, places her love on the beast. And her love is what transforms him into a lovely prince. And likewise, or thus, is the love of God. Have you experienced this love? Have you grasped it? Has this been um, something you have laid hold of? Is that something you've seized um, and, and taken into yourself. This love is something that we need to hear and experience every day. Um, in my relationship with Mel, um, we didn't simply say, I love you once, and that's it. Um, but rather, it's something that we say multiple times a day. 
And likewise, we need to hear from God every day the words, I love you. We need to hear and experience those words every day. And so, if there's application for us this morning, um, you and I need to create opportunities in our days when we can listen and hear him say those words, that he loves us. Ways we can do that is through prayer, through the reading of the word, through the sacraments, which we'll partake of this morning, through fellowship, through honest relationships. As it says in verse 18, that we experience this love with all of the saints. It's not something you can grasp and seize individually. It's something you must receive in communion. So Paul prays that we would experience this love, that we would grasp this love, and yet see how he, his third request, which is that you would become who you are, that you would grow up in Christ. And look at verse 19 where it says, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. And this is the result of love, of, of experiencing and grasping and laying hold of this love, that you would be filled to all the fullness of of God. And only this love can foster true growth and goodness in our lives. Only when you have experienced this love can you, though, can you then go and truly love those around you. When you begin to see that you are infinitely loved, not on your merits, not on your good deeds, but because of his choice, then you can freely go and love those around us. You can love others, not as a means of looking good or so you can particularly feel good about yourself, but freely and willingly giving of yourselves to and up for others. As they sing at the high point of Les Mis, when you love another person, you behold the face of God. So if these are Paul's requests in his prayer, how does his praise, particularly if you look verses 20 and 21, how did this praise fit in with this prayer? Let me read these verses again. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And there's two things I want to leave you with from this praise. First of all, um, we, you and I, should have confidence in this life and in our requests because of who God is. Confidence, not in who we are, but who God is. Look at how God is described. He is the one who can do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or Think. See that God is willing and able and that his love is shaping all things. Furthermore, realize also that this power is already at work within you. It's already active in you. As it says in Ephesians 2.10, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Good works in your friendships, good works in your families, in your relationships, your jobs, in um, the smallest details of your life. God's power is working to bring all things together for your good and for his glory. And lastly, um, worship is the only proper response in light of the love of God. 
worship, um, that we would orient our lives, that we would praise him, not simply on Sunday mornings, but each and every day, that our lives would be living sacrifices for his name and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that your love has motivated you to action, that you sent your son to live the life we ought to have lived and died the death that we deserved because of our sin. We thank you that your love will not let us go. We ask, O Lord, that we would be transformed by it more and more each day. In your son's name, amen.